0: On this episode of NewsWorld, I want to welcome you to this special Q and A town hall with Senator Ted Cruz. This event was only for my inner circle members as a benefit of membership. You know, one of the reasons I wanted Senator Cruz to join us is because of his deep knowledge of the U.S. Supreme Court, and I wanted to share a little bit of Senator Cruz's background. He earned his undergraduate degree from Princeton University and his law degree from Harvard Law School. After law school. He clerked for Chief Justice Rehnquist and then worked in private practice. In 1999, he joined George W. Bush's campaign for president as a domestic policy advisor. After working in Washington, D.C. at the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission during the Bush administration, he moved back to Texas and became the Solicitor General of Texas. In that role, he argued eight cases before the Supreme Court of the United States and defended our freedom of speech, our right to keep and bear arms, and our religious liberty. In 2013, he was sworn in as United States Senator from Texas. He currently serves on the Committees for Foreign Relations, Commerce, Science and Transportation, the Judiciary Committee, the Joint Economic Committee, and the Committee on Rules and Administration. Ted, I want to talk to you about the Supreme Court and things going on, but I think we almost have to start with this insanity of the armed man who was arrested near Justice Kavanaugh's home. Do you want to comment on that?
2: Yeah, well, Newt, it's great to join you and thank you for your longtime friendship and longtime leadership. For everyone who is a part of this, Newt has been for decades a font of ideas. Simply, he is brilliant, he is creative. He is tenacious. He is someone whose friendship and counsel I value deeply, and so it's great to be with you. And I will say, when Heidi and I had the chance to break bread with you and Calista and have dinner in Rome, it was truly an exquisite time when we were there visiting you and, guys and, as well. And
0: with, and with your two beautiful young daughters.
2: Who had a wonderful, wonderful time in Rome. It was their first time to Europe, and they loved every minute of it. Look, this attempted murder of Justice Kavanaugh is horrific. And a man was arrested in the early hours of the morning near Justice Kavanaugh's home with a gun, with a knife. He had Justice Kavanaugh's address. He had stated an intention to murder Justice Kavanaugh. And Look, we're at a time where violence is unfortunately more and more common, but this is the direct result of of the really unhinged rhetoric from the left and from the Democrats. This is the direct result. Chuck Schumer stood on the steps of the Supreme Court and threatened Kavanaugh by name and threatened Justice Gorsuch by name and said that they have unleashed the whirlwind and they will pay the price. And these deranged radicals are following the urgings of Schumer. And I will say, the Biden White House, when given the opportunity to condemn the angry and potentially violent protesters at the homes of the justices, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, refused to do so and said they should continue going to the homes of the justices. And it is a blatant attempt, number one, to bully and threaten The justices, but number two, to incite political violence. And a threat to the lives of the justices is fundamentally a threat to the rule of law in our country. It's a threat to the Constitution, it's a threat to an independent and functioning judiciary. You know, we see in banana republics and in countries controlled by drug cartels, we see threats to the lives of Supreme Court justices. But that shouldn't be happening in the United States of America, and it certainly shouldn't be happening with the Senate Majority Leader and the President of the United States cheering it on.
0: Isn't it correct that the Senate has, in fact, passed a bill to provide federal protection for the judges?
2: Yes, Yes. and at least so far, your successor, Nancy Pelosi, refuses to take it up.
0: I'm hoping that this incident will break that loose, because it's a little frightening to think that even a Supreme Court justice now is exposed to that kind of danger. And I agree with you that the kind of deranged politics that we're seeing on the left is amazing. This is doubly important because this has been a remarkably important Supreme Court session. I mean, there are a number of very significant things being considered by the court. And of course, the majority has moved pretty decisively that the Trump court is significantly more conservative then the court had been actually, I guess, since the appointment of Earl Warren in the 1950s. You're a real scholar of the court. What's your take of what's happening?
2: So listen, I am very optimistic about this term. And you're right, there are big, big cases before the court. Now, there is none more important than the Dobbs case. The Dobbs case is a case challenging Roe versus Wade. And as everyone knows now, a draft of the majority opinion was leaked. And the draft majority opinion, if it becomes the majority, will overturn Roe versus Wade, which is the right decision, but quite possibly the most consequential Supreme Court decision since 1973, since the court decided Roe 49 years ago. Let me pause for a second and reflect on the leak, because the leak is enormously consequential. I will say very little surprises me but that leak i was stunned i was truly speechless when news broke of the leak in over 200 years of our nation's history there's never been a draft opinion leaked from the supreme court and it is difficult to overstate how fundamentally that erodes the institution the trust the way the court operates, it hears oral arguments, the justices meet at conference, they vote, they cast a tentative vote. The senior justice in the majority assigns the draft majority opinion. But when that draft is written, it gets circulated to all nine justices and it gets revised sometimes dozens of times, sometimes hundreds of times, sometimes even thousands of times. And so there's a back and forth deliberative process where the justices are changing words and paragraphs and arguments and footnotes and going back and forth and back and forth and that has always been kept confidential you know as astonishing as it may sound the leak is in many ways a much more dramatic and shocking development than this lunatic trying to murder a justice because there have been death threats to justices before there sadly will be again although not previously with the encouragement of major elected political figures. But the leak, I believe it is overwhelmingly likely that leak came from a left wing law clerk clerking for one of the liberal justices who was unhappy about the decision and wanted to put it out there to bully and threaten and intimidate the justices and try to change the votes. And actually, this lunatic and attempted murderer was a foreseeable and predictable result of that leak as well, which I suspect that left-wing law clerk anticipated that one of the ways to stop an outcome he or she didn't want to see would be if one of the justices were killed. That is the result of years of deliberate politicization of the Supreme Court by the Democrats. Democrats view the court as simply another legislature, but actually a much easier legislature, because instead of convincing the American people, instead of winning on the merits on their policies, they just have to convince five unelected judges to decree the outcomes they want. And so I will say the leak is stunning, but if the majority opinion stays what it was, and I will say that draft majority by Justice Alito, which the court confirmed was genuine and real, I think was a masterful opinion. I think it was the right outcome. And I believe the court will follow through and stick with that conclusion, overturning Roe versus Wade.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So, what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.
2: The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
0: When you were a clerk for Chief Justice Rehnquist, could you have imagined leaking something?
2: It was literally beyond imagination. You know, the best analogy I've been able to come up with, it's almost like someone in the White House leaking the nuclear codes. Obviously, it doesn't threaten the death of millions of people, but it's that level of secrecy within the court, the deliberation and the drafts. There is nothing more central to how the court operates than that confidentiality of deliberation. and. I fear that this has done permanent damage to the court.
0: One last thing. I'm not a lawyer, and I don't have the extraordinary experience you do. But when people say that, you know, you shouldn't be reversing Roe versus Wade because of precedent, I was thinking back as a historian, Dred Scott said you were a slave anywhere in the country. Lincoln said it was clearly the wrong decision. It ultimately was reversed by constitutional amendment. And Plessy versus Ferguson said that segregation was legal and was only finally really begun to be adjusted by the Brown case in the 1950s. I mean, something is wrongly decided. In fact, it's totally legitimate, isn't it, for the court to decide to correct what, in retrospect, was an error.
2: That's absolutely right. And there are hundreds of decisions from the Supreme Court overturning precedents. I would encourage folks to read Justice Alito's draft opinion, or ultimately the opinion that issues from the court, Because that opinion carefully, methodically went through the rules, the standards for overturning precedent. There's a principle stare decisis, which is the respect for precedent. But the court has also long said that the protections of stare decisis are less vigorous when it deals with a constitutional matter versus a statutory matter. And and the reason for that is if the court gets it wrong about what a statute says, There's a fix for that, which is Congress can come back and change the statute. But if the court issues a constitutional ruling and purports to be interpreting the Constitution, then Congress doesn't have the ability to come in and alter that outcome. And so the court has always said, if we get it wrong, if it proves unworkable, if it was on Roe versus Wade when the decision issued, it was wrong the day it came down and it's been wrong every day since then. For 185 years of our nation's history, the question of abortion was decided by elected legislatures. And in each state, they had different standards. And if you didn't like the standards, if you didn't like the rules in your state, you went and tried to convince your fellow citizens and you went to your elected legislators and you argued, this is what I think the right rule should be. In 1973, seven unelected judges said, you foolish voters, you simpletons, you don't have a right to make those determinations. We're going to make them for you. Now, the word abortion is found nowhere in the Constitution. The reasoning of Roe versus Wade, Justice Harry Blackmun wrote the opinion, and it is a famously poorly reasoned opinion, so much so that nobody even on the left defends the reasoning of Roe. It reads like a statute. He laid out three trimesters and just specified, here are the rules that it shall govern abortion. And it's not a judicial opinion in the ordinary sense of interpreting the law. It's simply decreeing, this is what I say you must do. I will tell you, by the way, the reasoning upon which the court found a right to abortion in the Constitution, even though for 185 years, it had been up to the legislatures to decide was based on the following kind of attenuated reasoning. They said, okay, there is no right to abortion. There is no general right to privacy included in the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights. But the rights in the Bill of Rights have emanations. Basically, they glow. And those emanations cast penumbras, which, as you know, is a fancy tenpenny word for shadows, And within those shadows from the emanations, that's where we find this right. Saying it, you're naturally smiling because it's ludicrous to just say the reasoning out loud. That is obviously made up. And I will say, look, I don't think there has been a decision in our lifetimes that has caused such social dissension, divide, anger, that Roe has and part of the reason is this abortion is an issue people feel strongly passionately emotionally about you and I are both pro-life there are others who disagree and have very strong views and by the court taking it out of the democratic process there was no outlet to resolve those tensions and to argue back and forth what should the right rules be I hope and believe if the court follows through on overturning Roe and I believe it will that we will see some lessening of the angry divide as each state adopts different rules that reflects the values and more's of the citizens of each state.
1: No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on post reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Claire, do you have any questions lined up? We do. Thank you, Newt. Thank you, Senator. Our first question comes from John.
3: I'm from Indian Wells, California, which is a very conservative place. But as I speak to my fellow conservatives about the road outcome, I'm surprised at how many female pro-choice advocates there are and how worried they are about this. And I'm particularly concerned that people like Mitch McConnell, starting to talk about oh, we have an opportunity to impose a national limit on abortion is the gun and the female pretty stirred up, and I think there's so many targets of opportunity for Republicans to win the midterms that we need to think a little careful about playing defense as well as offense and Think about positioning and the logic that we are going to talk about in our various campaigns about Roe and remove as much of the concern that the right to choose advocates have.
0: Ted, would you like to comment?
2: Sure. So, John, it's a very good question. And I understand the concerns you have. And there are Republicans in the Senate and I'm sure in the House that share those concerns. I will tell you personally. I don't think those concerns are going to come significantly to fruition. There are a number of Democrats in Washington that are desperately hoping that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, that it will have for them a positive political effect and save them from what is likely to be an absolute bloodbath in November. Here's why I don't think that will happen. For a lot of people who don't follow these issues closely, They don't necessarily know what overturning Roe versus Wade means. And what the folks on this call understand is that overturning Roe does not mean that abortion is illegal across the country. What it simply means is that it returns to the elected legislatures to make decisions. What that will mean is that the rules will vary widely depending on where you live. You're in California. I think in bright blue states like California, like New York at least for the immediate and foreseeable future, it is likely that nothing will change. Those states will continue to allow unlimited abortion on demand, that that's where the elected politicians in those states are. And so I think some of the folks you may be talking to in California who are dismayed about that may find themselves surprised that the day after or the week after, or the month after the decision comes down that for folks living in those blue states, little if anything has changed. Folks living in redder states, whether Texas or Georgia or Florida, you will see some meaningful restrictions on abortion. And how significant those restrictions are, how far reaching they are, is going to vary state by state. It's gonna depend upon the values and beliefs of the citizens of those states. I think that's actually how the Constitution was designed to operate. I can tell you in Texas, Texas has one of the most vigorous laws of any of the states, and our law in Texas is in effect right now. In Texas, if there is a negative political blowback to the law, it is showing up in no polling anywhere, and I'm seeing no signs of it whatsoever in texas what we're seeing in elections across the state is frankly what we're seeing in elections across the country which is people are deeply unhappy with the path they're on they're very unhappy about inflation they're very unhappy about high gas prices they're very unhappy about rising crime they're very unhappy about the chaos at our southern border all of those issues are dominating the polling and and i think are putting us on a path to a big victory in November for Republicans. And so I think politically, the people who are likely to be most worked up and unhappy about a decision overturning Roe are also likely to be concentrated in blue jurisdictions that, for whom, little if anything will change. And so I think the political impact will be far less significant than many anticipate it might be. Newt, what do you think?
0: First of all, I think that the politics of life, things like the grocery bill, the gasoline bill, the threat of violent crime, all these things that are in people's lives are so overwhelming and so negative for the Democrats that they're gonna shape the election. Second, as you point out, people are gonna discover that Roe v. Wade does not abolish the right to have an abortion. It returns it to the states for the elected officials within a political framework, having a political dialogue, will be able to make a decision, which I think is dramatically healthier. In fact, there's a speech, I think, in 1993 at Georgetown, in which then-judge, later Justice Ginsburg, said that Roe v. Wade actually had made things worse because it had frozen the national dialogue and had forced it into hostility. When she said that, That was a remarkable statement, which people on the left ignore.
1: Our next question comes from Dr. Cheryl Novas.
3: I'm from Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Thank you so much. Thank you for this. I am a psychologist, and I understand and am an advocate for ethics at the highest level in protecting the clients. However, when will the government remove the veil of anonymity for minors who have had history with law enforcement and mental health providers, in that, I feel that this is one of those root causes, because we're seeing consistency. Is there an age that you would create for a sort of a
0: veil, let say 10 or 12, or would you suggest that at any age that information should be made available?
3: No, spot on. I would think 10 or 12, probably 12, because... You know, at that point, there is more of a level of accountability and understanding.
0: Ted, what's your thought about whether or not juvenile offenders should be knowable, say, between 13 and 18?
2: Well, Dr. Domus, I think that is a good question. And I can tell you it is a question that right now the Senate is actively considering and wrestling with. Obviously, everyone is reeling from the horrific mass murder in Uvalde. There are not words to describe the depravity it takes to murder young children like that. And I think everyone wants to do more to stop these sorts of violent crimes. Now, the big question is, well, what is the more we can do? And I think there are two approaches. The approach that is much more likely to be effective is to focus on the bad actors, to focus on criminals, to focus on felons and fugitives. And as you noted, those with Significant mental illness. And those people who are ineligible to buy a firearm who attempt to purchase it illegally, to prevent them from doing so, and to prosecute them and put them in jail. And when one of the challenges, and this is one that is potentially raised by the shooter in Uvalde, is that he had just turned 18. At this point, the details of what his mental health history and criminal history had been as a juvenile are still less than fully clear but this was obviously a deeply disturbed and deranged individual as demonstrated by the unspeakable conduct carried out and so one of the issues we're discussing is how can we reasonably know if someone is a serious danger to others i would say we're in the early parts of those debates One of the challenges is getting access to juvenile records can be very, very difficult. They're on local levels. They can be dispersed. They're not in any centralized repository. Some jurisdictions expunge them. So the mechanics, even if one made the public policy decision that you wanted access to those records, the mechanics of getting them are not particularly straightforward. I can tell you, I introduced legislation in 2013, within a couple of months of arriving in the Senate, I was elected in 2012, and so I got here in January, 2013. And shortly after I got here was when the Sandy Hook shooting happened in Newtown, Connecticut. It was horrific then. I introduced legislation at the time that was the Grassley Cruz legislation. So I did so along with Senator Chuck Grassley, and it focused on violent, criminals felons fugitives those with serious mental illnesses it did several things it mandated the Department of Justice conduct an audit to make sure that all federal felonies are in the background check database it created a gun crime task force of the Department of Justice to prosecute felons and fugitives who try to illegally buy buy guns right now DOJ prosecutes very very few of them who commit felonies trying to buy illegal guns it also directed more prosecutorial resources at putting in jail for long jail sentences, people who use guns in crimes, removing the trigger pullers from the street. And it provided additional funding for school safety, $300 million in funding for school safety to enhance the safety at schools, including hiring armed police officers in schools. We voted on it in the Senate floor, and Grassley Cruz got a majority vote on the Senate floor. 52 senators voted in favor of it. Nine Democrats voted in favor of it. So it got the most bipartisan support of any of the comprehensive legislation that was voted on. But the reason it didn't pass into law is that Harry Reid and the Democrats filibustered it. They demanded 60 votes. So even though it got 52, a majority, it didn't get 60, it didn't become law. An element of Grassley-Cruz also focused on funding and incentives for states to report mental health adjudications to the database. And so all of those, I think focusing on the bad guys is the way to prevent crimes. And I will say, unfortunately, for many Democrats in Washington, their instinct is they immediately go to disarming law-abiding citizens, which wouldn't prevent these crimes. Taking guns away from law-abiding citizens doesn't work. And in fact, if you look at the jurisdictions with the strictest gun control in America, almost without exception, they have the highest crime rates and the highest murder rates. And if you disarm law-abiding citizens, you simply make them vulnerable to the criminals. And so the approach that I think we should take is focus on the bad guys. And I will say your question about mental health and criminal records for juveniles is an important one and a difficult one that I would say all of us are thinking through and wrestling with right now. And I will say, Newt, I also got a series of post-its, which I will walk through. So I got the two-minute post-it, and I got <laughs> the zero-minute post-it, and then I just got Cloak, which means the cloak room has called, which means I need to run down and vote.
0: Thank, thank you for being here. Good luck with your vote. And thank you for that very, very informative answer.
2: Thank you, Nunez. Take Sid. care. God bless.
0: Talk to you soon. Claire, I think I have time for maybe two more questions if
1: you'd like. Jerry asks, What have been your reactions to the primaries so far? Do you have positive predictions for the midterm elections? Well,
0: let me say that in general, Republicans have been turning out in the primaries. Democrats have not. In Iowa, for example, there was a very big Republican turnout, very weak Democratic turnout. In South Dakota, the same pattern. In Ohio, the same pattern. In Pennsylvania, the same pattern. Georgia, the same pattern. I get the sense that Republicans are very enthusiastic. Democrats are very depressed. And I fully expect us to win this fall. If you look at the scale of the economic problems and the Crime problems and the border problems.
1: Naomi from Virginia. As a young person, how can I work to improve America and restore the values and morals of the founding fathers?
0: That's a great question, Naomi. First of all, study, do well, be a role model yourself, find groups and organizations that share your values and work with them. Encourage your friends. I think. Having an informed electorate, having citizens who know something, Thomas Jefferson once said, those who hope to be both ignorant and free are trying for something that has never occurred and never will. So I think, Naomi, you have the right attitude. You're asking the right questions. And I hope that you will continue to be a good citizen and continue to be a role model for your friends. Thank you to all of you who joined us this evening. And I hope you found this conversation helpful and informative. And I want to thank Senator Ted Cruz. Thank you to my guest, Senator Ted Cruz. You can join my inner circle by going to newtsinnercircle.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Slum. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.